welcome back to The Dad Chronicle. I'm your host, Alex Albisu. This is episode 101. So first things first, I hope everybody at home is safe. I hope you're staying healthy. This whole uh, issue that we're dealing with uh, around COVID-19 is definitely scary, but I am a firm believer that if we follow the right protocols set forth by the professionals and scientists out there, we can beat this thing as a global society. So please stay safe, keep up that social distancing, and with that, let's get on to the show. As I mentioned at the top of the show, this is episode 101. And when I think of the term 101, I think of education, you know, some of my classes in college, but education is sort of the theme coming up here in the next few episodes. I got feedback from you all, the community who listens to the Dad Chronicle, that you want to learn about some of the different forms of education uh, that would potentially be the right fit for your kids. I know that this is something that Deanna and I think about uh, recently, you know, especially with like Aria, you know, kind of starting to get into that phase where, you know, what's going to be right? Do we send her to private school, public school? And uh, we learn a little bit about uh, a different form of education, and that is Montessori schools. We're going to learn about that today with my conversation with Melinda Cotter, a principal at a Montessori school. First, we talk about how she was inspired to become a teacher at a Montessori school. And she really made it a point to drive home that Montessori is so much more than just following the child. It's really about this sense of community. Um, it's about how you treat one another. It's about recognizing your your role as a global citizen and that everything is connected. We talk about the Montessori method and how it's often misunderstood. People think about the method and they are described a typical classroom. I think it's easy for them to go, that sounds like a disaster. And when you actually are seeing it, it's quite the opposite. It's highly structured. It has to be, or it would be chaos. And finally, we talk about whether or not Montessori schools are right for you and your family. Montessori is a lifestyle. You have got to commit to it. Here's my conversation with Melinda Cotter. Melinda Cotter, welcome to the Dad Chronicle. How are you tonight? Good. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Happy for you to be here. Very excited for our conversation and uh, very interested in learning a little bit more about Montessori schools. But before we jump into that, I want the world to know who you are. So why don't you take a moment, introduce yourself and uh, talk a little bit about some of your credentials. Okay. Um, my name is Melinda Cotter. I'm currently the head of school at a Montessori school in Hilton Head, South Carolina. Uh, I have been out of school for quite a while now. I am sad to say. I feel whenever we mention years that we graduate, it ages me, so I won't uh, mention any years. <laughs> but uh, I received my uh, my bachelor's in anthropology, social anthropology from University of Virginia. Uh, went on to get a master's in ed leadership from George Mason. And then I also am Montessori credentialed from the Institute of Advanced Montessori Studies, which is based out of Maryland. Very cool. And uh, go Patriots. I'm a, I'm a Patriot as well. And we have yeah. a we have a mutual friend. And how, how we know each other is through Tim Wilson, who is a co-host on another show here on the network called Joystick and Mouse. Um, Joystickandmouse.com if you want to listen to that. Tim has also been featured here on The Dad Chronicle a few times. So uh, happy to have a friend of a very dear friend of mine on this show. So um, nice to have that connection. Now, before we kind of jump into some more stuff, uh, a, a very prominent topic on everybody's, uh, you know, on the top of everybody's heads right now, COVID-19. This is something that has been uh, affecting everybody's lives. And it's certainly relevant um, to the educational system right now. 
What's the latest, like, what are some of the ways that uh, educators have been kind of preparing for COVID-19 and dealing with that? Um, I think that all the educators and administrators in public and private school have been really doing their best, um, particularly with what I personally feel is short notice in preparation um, to kind of bring distance learning to the classroom, specifically for our school and for Montessori. We really spent Monday doing an in-service to talk about what was age-appropriate you know, materials, expectations for students, um, and additionally to think about the parents who inevitably have turned into teachers, um, to teachers who still work full-time, who are also expected to be full-time parents. So um, at the pre-primary level, which for us starts as at 12 months, all the way up to 36 months, all of our teachers made kind of um, bags to go home that included anything from practical life to math to language, physical manipulatives for the students to work with. And then they're connecting with the parents to give them ideas about how to use it, what you can find around the home to kind of create Montessori in the home, um, all the way up to middle school, which for us, we call secondary one. It's a mixed classroom of seventh and eighth graders. That tends to be a bit more traditional. Most of them are all completely on textbooks, um, workbooks, Google Docs. They're utilizing Google Classroom. So um, that makes it a bit easier, but I feel like we're just kind of doing the best we can. Um, our goal is to adapt every week. So we have a face-to-face -face video conferencing with the teachers by department to talk about parent feedback, to bring up questions, uh, to troubleshoot, brainstorm, figure out what else we can do to keep learning going. Um, but at the same time, kind of recognizing that everyone is very anxious and stressed and we want to minimize that as much as possible because that's what the children inevitably are going to feel. So that's kind of our goal is to make things easy at this point. It's not necessarily about the direct aims of a work. It's to say, you can do it. We're here to support you. Yeah. Let's figure this out together. I think that that's the key to all of this. Gosh, that's such, it's such a weird time we're in right now. I mean, like you said, parents are becoming teachers and having to homeschool their kids uh, I work for a very large technology company, and one of the things that uh, has been really great about working for that company is their understanding that, hey, parents, you got you, there's like a whole lot on your plate, not just your day job, but right. but we're being extra flexible. So I think that you know for all those listening right now, um, first of all, I would love to hear your feedback on how COVID nineteen is is certainly affecting some of your day to day. If you can email the Dad Chronicle Podcast at gmail .com. Um, and also some of the ways that you're, you're overcoming this, how the school systems kind of what Melinda's talking about, uh, you know, how they're supporting you. Um, and, and maybe we could talk about that a little bit more on the show. So, um, thank you for enabling as a parent, not necessarily one that's putting, uh, their, their kid through some homeschooling right now because Ari is only, you know, two and a half, <laughs> but certainly as a parent, I have a lot of appreciation for what teachers do. I believe, I, I truly believe that there's a calling to being an educator. So, so thank you very much for doing that and also enabling parents. So that's wonderful. Yeah, well, I think that we all really love it. And I think at the bottom of everything is that we all agree, we would rather be in the classroom with our children. We don't want um, this kind of 
I use burden loosely because we find it very rewarding. But if this is not your calling and it's not something you're doing because you have five other things to do, it can feel very burdensome. And what's worse is that that translates into a negative experience for the children. And our goal is to make this a positive experience for them. And if that means being a little bit more flexible and being more creative, then I feel like that's something that we really have to do. Um, we are busier now than if we were in the classroom. Um, I teach as well. I think that a lot of Montessori heads of school tend to teach in the classroom. Um, American Montessori Society puts out a survey to a lot of the, the heads and teachers at private Montessori schools. And when that survey comes back, I think that it's around 40%, depending on the size of the school, um, full-time heads that also teach. Wow. So in addition to being primary trained, which is for ages two and a half to six, um, I'm trained for upper elementary too. So between staff and parents and now my fourth, fifth, and sixth graders, it's a really busy day and everyone's just trying to figure it out. So you know, I'll have messages from parents that range from the, oh my gosh, I can't believe how quickly you guys pulled this together and this is amazing, to what is going on? I can't keep this up for another day. And I think that you kind of, as an administrator, end up being, um, you know, the person who's lashed out at because they just have to. And so my job is to make sure that I'm there for the children, but also for the parents to let them know we're not judging you. Um, we've got to take it slow. We're here to support you. What else can we do instead of kind of, uh, it's kind of like directing where that anxiety is coming and how we can help overcome it. But right now the, the unknown is what's kind of, um, keeping us from having a, a plan going forward because we don't know, are we planning for a year? In which case that plan might look a little different. Are we planning to just get through two weeks? In which case, we can kind of do that. Beyond that, none of us really know what the impact is going to be long term and yeah. um, how we're going to be forgiven in terms of the days out of school, especially if you're an accredited Montessori school like we are. Um, so it's just a lot of unknown. And I think that the one thing that we can do is, is smile. You know, you have yeah. to figure out a way to take a break, to smile, to be happy that you're healthy and that you can have this problem. Um, and so we just keep trying to remind parents of that, like, you know, just keep throwing things at us. That's what we're here for. You know, we're sitting around with no children. <laughs> so, you know, let us support you any way that we can. Gosh, very well put. Um, and, and I appreciate that perspective. That patience is is tremendously uh, important in your role and your basically everything that you just talked about doing, being an educator as well as running the faculty and everything around this school. And this is actually a good segue because I want to learn a little bit more about your inspiration into getting into education in the first place. Why are you an educator? What was, what was that? Was there a profound moment for you or anything? There was. And um, my profound moment was completely Montessori. Um, I feel that hundred uh, percent. I was actually um, going towards sports marketing uh, I was working for a coach at University of Virginia. I had full intentions of staying with him when he went to the NFL. That was my goal. Uh, I had a very dear aunt in Northern Virginia who was battling cancer. She was the single cool aunt who spoiled all of her nieces and nephews, and we all adored her. And so um, when she was battling cancer, she was already wheelchair bound and I felt the need to go and take care of her. And so I moved in, I quit my job, 
Um, I moved up there to take care of her. Um, and while I was there, my mom gave me some great advice, which was, you can't be a live in caregiver. You have got to find a job. You have to connect. You need adult interaction, um, or else you're really going to fall into kind of this depressive state where, um, you're not getting what you need. You're not getting kind of that stimulation that you need. And so I started looking for part-time work that would kind of go into the same schedule she had with her chemotherapy appointments. And I found this sweet Montessori school in Reston and it was privately owned. It was a private for-profit, which is a little bit different than where I am now, which is um, a nonprofit run by a board. But this private for-profit school was a Montessori school. And um, this owner was so kind and she was so understanding and she really made it a point to drive home that Montessori is so much more than just following the child. It's really about the sense of community. Um, it's about how you treat one another. It's about recognizing your, your role as a global citizen and that everything is connected. And the way that she treated me, who I, I was a stranger, I was a new part-time employee who worked in aftercare. So when you talk about, you know, on the totem pole of a school, you're the new person coming in part-time who stays until six you know? And, uh, she treated me like a full-time staff member who had been there for 20 years. And if something happened to my aunt, she was understanding, she made it work. And, um, we got to know one another. She really showed that for Montessori to work, for you to show that you love the children and that you love the parents, you have to love the staff and you have to get to know them. And it's only when you get to know one another that all those idiosyncrasies that make up a person's personality and spirit and will is what you really understand about them. And when you understand them, you can guide them and you can set them up for success. And that is its heart is what Montessori is. And so, um, my aunt Sally did pass away within a year by then I was fully bought into Montessori and what it was and what it did for me and what I saw it doing for the children and the parents and the staff. Um, and I was just inspired by it. And I decided that I was going to pursue it to be full time. And she ended up sending me to Montessori training um, to become a certified teacher. And, you know, I when I moved to take this job, it was because I wanted to live in Hilton Head. It was not because I did not love my school. Leaving that school was incredibly difficult um, because of what it had done for me. But it was great. She came down here for my wedding. And oh, it's nice to keep in touch. And great. Um, also at my wedding was one of my graduating kindergartners of my first kindergarten no class. No way. That's awesome. Who's now going off to college next year. Um, and so that's what I mean when I talk about community is that you build these relationships, um, because you're with these children for a long time. And I think that that's unique, at least in the primary classroom, the children are there with you for three to four years. So if you're a primary teacher, you think about that foundation you're building with the children at this young age when their minds are like sponges and the same time with their, their parents, because for a lot of them, they choose primary as the time to start sending their children to school. So it's also their first school age experience that they're having as a parent. And it's a really unique time. It's a special time to build a relationship, but, um, that is why it's so near and dear to my heart because it was really there for me when I needed it. And it showed me so much of what Montessori is. Yeah. See, this is what I hear from you is first of all, a tremendous passion for 
uh, for building connections between people. Uh, and, and that really comes off uh, based on some of the ways that you're describing this appreciation for your former student coming to your wedding, your, uh, the, your former boss um, really staying in touch and mentoring you through some of this process. And that sounds like kind of the crux of what the Montessori program is about based on what you just said, but it, that's something that I value tremendously. And, and I think that that's uh, really, really cool to hear just personally. And, you know, one of the things that you talked about, I want to touch base on a little bit more is some of the training that you got. So when you hear Montessori training, how is this approached differently than let's say uh, somebody that goes for their education degree and is working at a public school? Sure. Um, I think that both degrees and certifications are very important. I think that you need to choose the certification that's right for you and right for your long-term goals. I think sometimes between public and private school or Montessori versus traditional, you kind of tend to get into this match back and forth of which one's better and, you know, mine's better because of this. And really it should be an individual choice and, you know, kind of match what your educational philosophy is. Uh, what I love about being Montessori trained is that you go for a very specific training. So instead of getting a general, you know, K-8, K-12, K-5 training, you really train for a smaller segment. So you can get trained for pre-primary from uh, birth to 36 months. You can get early childhood from two and a half to six. You can get your lower elementary training, which basically is first through third grade or ages six to nine. And then the next grouping is nine to 12 or grades four through six. And then secondary one, seventh through eighth, and then secondary two, which is basically high school. Um, and I think that it's really unique because all of these ages are very different. Um, the children are going through different things developmentally. And especially for early childhood, it's important to know, you know, what are the milestones at two and at three and at four? Uh, that's something that you might not get a foundation for, for just a K through five training. Um, if you have a K through five training, sometimes if you're in public school, you're also moved around to different grades of classrooms. So one year you're a fifth grade teacher, the next year they might move you to first grade. I think right. it's hard because you do have your kind of favorite age groups. So if you're moved around a lot, it's really hard to kind of get going and figure out what did I do that I loved? What did I do that I would change? Um, what did I notice about this age group? I think that it's hard to kind of keep building your repertoire in terms of a smaller segment. Um, but that's what I love about Montessori. I just think that it's really unique to spend that long in a certification program where you're really invested on specific years of a child's life and what that should look like for typically developing children. And that really gives you a base for also students who might need support. So I know that from this grouping, it's really important as a primary teacher for early intervention. So if I didn't have this foundation of what milestones look like and what I should anticipate students being able to do, then I'm kind of missing out on a key step to, you know, having that early intervention that's needed. Um, so those are just some of the positives that I feel like Montessori training addresses. That That's really good information um, and kind of eye-opening for me because I wasn't really sure about the approach. And, and I, I want to actually dive even further into this because I think what would help our listeners and me, uh, just being a little selfish here because I'm trying to learn more about it, uh, give me some tangibles on the differences in the way that the approach is in a Montessori environment versus perhaps a, a traditional educational environment. 
Sure. And, and, you know, every Montessori and every traditional environment is different. I do think that sometimes it boils down to the teacher and kind of what they're able to do in a classroom. I've met some wonderful traditional public school teachers who are actually able to run their classroom in a very Montessori-esque style. So I think that that has kind of an overarching presence in the flexibility that you have as an educator. But I think that at at the core of it, Montessori is about following the child. It's about respecting the individual child and their needs. So one of the key things is like, let's take, for example, um, a fifth grade classroom versus an upper elementary classroom. So in a fifth grade traditional classroom, you might be working on blocks where from, you know, every 40 to 45 minutes, your students are all working on one subject together at the same time. And you're teaching to the class. Um, let's say that of your class of 25, three of them are not keeping up. Three of them are not understanding. Three of them are way past and are waiting for you to be done. And everyone else is kind of in the middle. Well, you don't really have the flexibility because you're one to 25 to have three go off and start something else without their lesson for you to be able to work, you know, one-on-one with the six students who are really struggling Meanwhile, the three who are far ahead might really be getting bored or frustrated, and the six who are far behind are obviously drawing attention because they're holding up the lesson. Um, In a Montessori classroom of upper L, those fifth grade students are peppered in, so there might be eight to nine of them out of a class of 25, and they're starting their day in different areas of the classroom. Some like to start with something that's the most challenging, like a math or geometry lesson, while others would you know, like to start with um, their U.S. history or their grammar lesson for the day. At no point if they need help do they feel like they're either holding anyone up or anybody notices that they have help, um, or if it's the opposite way and they're done and they grasp it quickly, we can move them on to the next concept. So they're always working at their own pace. And what you're doing in a Montessori classroom is you're really setting up the environment as preparing the child. So you want to make sure that you've thought through all the lessons that you have, all of the works that are on the shelf so that the child experiences success before failure. So If you are putting out something for a primary age child that requires them to have a paintbrush and paint and water and paper, you make sure that they have all of those things on the shelf. Um, You want to make sure that if there are materials there that they're working on, you want to make sure that there's some type of control of error so they can see if they're headed the wrong direction um, without feeling like they need to go to the teacher for everything because independence is another big goal. And I just think in a Montessori environment, you know, these children are able to get up and navigate their environment with purpose. And so that gives them a chance to organize themselves, to kind of concentrate on what their needs are, to be independent, um, and to kind of develop that coordination of simply just gross motor skills, depending on their age, all the way up to fine motor skills, to kind of advanced functions of planning out, like I'm getting up now, what do I need to get? I need to go over there and do that without disturbing everybody. I need to make sure that I'm able to grab all of my things and go back to my seat. What if I forgot this? And we want them to start thinking through this processing because um, it just builds, you know, higher executive functioning skills. You know, you just uh, so a question that was going through my mind when you mentioned that, yeah, you might sprinkle in some of these some of these kids, but you have them kind of starting at different areas, and it seems like there's a lot going on. And in, and in my mind. It was almost. I was thinking to myself, "Wow, that's that seems so 
I don't know. Chaotic is not the word. Like it's like there's a lot going on. How do you as a teacher really, uh, you know, stay in tune with everything that's going on? But but what you just said is so important in the process. It's creating that sense of autonomy and independence and uh, enabling and empowering the kids to really hone in on that. And that's a piece that uh, hearing this, I'm realizing, you know, that that is a really outspoken um, part of the entire upbringing that we don't really think about for our kids is is promoting that independence and let, letting them just figure it out, but setting them up for success. Oh, yeah. Uh, you know, what you touched on is, I think, a big misnomer about Montessori. Um, when people think about the method and they are described a typical classroom, I think it's easy for them to go, that sounds like a disaster. And when you actually are seeing it, it's quite the opposite. It's highly structured. It has to be or it would be chaos. Right. Um, the teachers have to be incredibly organized. They are literally teaching nine to ten subjects per child at different levels. Um but the teachers do it and love it because of the connection that they're making with that student. They know that it's a positive connection and they know that they're doing everything they can to really strengthen any weaknesses and to kind of expound on any strengths. And I think that in addition to that autonomy and that independence and that executive functioning that's required, um, the bigger key to everything that Montessori children get is trust. And that's huge um, for us to be able to give our children. I think that um, some children tend to be micromanaged. Um, some children try to be hovered on. And there's this sense of, like, I have to watch you because what if you do something wrong? And what if you do something wrong? I mean, is that that big of a deal? Right. And if you don't create this environment centered on trust, then students become scared of failure. And when they start having these preconceived fears – all those things get translated to academics. And in a Montessori classroom, we give them the trust. Um, they are given it freely. It is only kind of rescinded if they violate it, but that's at older ages. And that comes with also conversations about natural consequences. And we say like, do you want to have that trust taken away? Don't you love the ability to get up and do, you know, X, Y, and Z? And the students really do um, because they're given it freely and because they're given that independence, um, we find that they make great choices. Uh, do you have a student every now and then who kind of pushes that boundary? Of course. I mean, that's just part of life. But it's our job to make sure that that environment is set up for them to be successful. And if we've done our job at preparing the environment, then being able to give trust and independence freely is easy. So how should parents, when they're when they're taking into consideration, like if I were to think about ARIA, if, if Deanna and I were to consider putting Aria into a Montessori school, what are the things that we should know as parents and perhaps think about uh, with Aria's personality in consideration uh, to know that that would be a potentially good fit for her as a student, but then also us as parents in the way that we uh, want to raise our child? Sure. Um, I actually had a, um, a nun as my practical life um, primary um, class teacher for my first early childhood credential. Her name was Sister Anita. She was an amazing woman. And um, one of the things that she said stuck with me, which is Montessori is a lifestyle. You have got to commit to it. That is the, the main way for it to become successful across the board is 
there has to be an understanding. And it's really the school and the teacher and the administrator's job to provide that level of parent education so that there's an understanding of what it means. But all the work that goes into preparing the environment and setting up this idea of trust and working hard so that every material has a control of error and direct and indirect aim and kind of introducing the sense of community and what it means and why it's important does no good if that student goes home and um, that parent's not on board. And I'm sure that there are some aspects of traditional school that are the exact same way. You know, you would have a public school teacher who would say, yeah, if I'm going to run my classroom like this and you go home and do things differently or say opposite, it's not going to work. I think a little difference could be, depending on the age of your child, that could be six to eight teachers who are telling you different ways they run their classroom. Where in Montessori, you really have your core, you know, one to two teachers, depending on the age group of who that is. Um, You know, things to consider are, do you want to do this long term? You know, it's typically a standard three-year cycle up till secondary one. Um, of course, it is within every parent's right to go for a year or two years and pull. But when you do, you miss the final piece of that puzzle. So all the students kind of watch this rite of passage happening in their classroom. So let's just say they come in um, at age three and a half. So the three and a half year olds are seeing what the four and a half year olds are doing and what the five and a half year kindergartners are doing whether it's being able to do the work on the last shelf in math or preparing for your walking across the bridge song, the three and a half year olds start to get it. And they start to see, oh, if I do this work, then it leads to the next work on the shelf. And the four and a half year olds, they get to have a job in the classroom and the kindergartners get to check message of the day work. And when you take that away from them and you don't commit to the three year cycle, you kind of take away those rites of passage that they really look forward to. Um, and you also take away the opportunity to lead. You know, the biggest piece of Montessori as a three-year cycle is that you have these students who are your leaders in the classroom. So they're gaining leadership opportunities. And the minute they get into kindergarten, or I know some public schools do pre-K, you are with a group of your same age peers for the rest of your life. I mean, that is your classroom. You are all maybe within a month to a year, depending on, you know, your age or if you've missed the cutoff or the start of the school year, but you lose the opportunity to lead. Instead, you start to compete and to fight for the opportunity. Here it's given to you and you're being taught how to lead. So this is how you can be a good leader. You can respect the people in your classroom. You can respect yourself. You can respect the adults. You have to make sure that you are greeting people, that you are kind. Um, you know, you see the students who are getting ready to leave your classroom and graduate, and you can see the leadership kind of getting a little bossy, but that's also a rite of passage. That kind of tells us you're ready. So once we see our six-year-olds who are graduating kindergarten get a little bossy and frustrated with the three-year-olds, that's how we know you're ready for first grade. When you get into first grade, now you're the little fish in the big pond again, (laughs) and the third years are the leaders. So it kind of goes through that cycle, but it's an incredible thing to watch these students, even as young as kindergarten, developing this assuredness and this confidence um, and this kind of ability to lead a group of students. And it's amazing. Yeah, and, and this, um, all this that you're saying is really great, and I, and I love the methodology. It's a, a lot of it really jives with my own uh, thoughts on on parenting and and you know just being a human being in general. It's uh, it's this is really good stuff. You know, one of the other things I wanted to to understand a little bit more of is how consistent is the delivery 
of these methodologies. You know, I, I think it's fair to say that no matter what school system you go to, you know, there's going to be different teachers with different, you know, that in mind. But, you know, like you mentioned at the top of the show, uh, there are some for-profit schools versus non-profit. Uh, uh, does that take into consideration the type of things that they teach? Like, how does that dynamic all work? Sure. Um, for the most part, uh, for-profit and non-profit doesn't affect um, Montessori that's taught. It just affects your business model. Um, there are two main uh, Montessori teaching credentials in the United States, uh, AMI, which is American Montessori International, and AMS, American Montessori Society. Um, AMS is you know, where I got my training, or it's the affiliation for your MAPT certification program. Um, there are negligible differences. I had a cousin in California whose teachers were AMI trained. Um, I noticed a few differences in terms of the materials that were put out. Um, for my training, we tend to put out things, let's say, in science and cycles. So we might study the parts of a frog and the parts of a horse at different times of the year, where AMI tends to have them out all year long. Um, those are just my personal um, feelings on it. The unfortunate side is that Montessori is not trademarked, and a lot of schools are able to call themselves Montessori schools, even though the training um, might not be uh, an AMS, AMI, or MAPT-trained um, teacher or administrator. So I would say for parents, it's really important to do your research that just because it says Montessori doesn't mean that there's Montessori learning or methods being used in the environment. But if you have a properly credentialed, trained set of teachers and administrators, then the work that's being given from a pink tower lesson all the way up to a bank game, to a division board, all of those things should be standardized. You might see minor tweaks here and there, but it would be nothing that the average eye would ever notice. Um, but I have seen a lot of Montessori schools that um, I call them Montessomethings because they have used the name Montessori, but they are far from it. And um, I've also seen um, beautiful Montessori schools that clearly have a great bank statement with all the newest works and fancy facilities who have teachers who don't have Montessori in their heart. So um, it can kind of go both ways. So how, how do you tell if somebody just at, at the very basic level of everything you just said, how do you tell that a Montessori school is actually a Montessori school and not something with just the Montessori label on it? Sure. Um, well, most of the time you would go to a school website to start and anyone who has um, an affiliation with AMS or AMI should have it proudly displayed at the very least on their application. Um, I think that it is a question that should definitely be asked whenever you go to a school. I, I don't think there's anything wrong with saying to an administrator or a director of admissions, you know, can you tell me more about how your teachers and administrators are credentialed? You know, what Montessori program are you, um, are you familiar with? Are you a member of, are you accredited by? I think it's important because that's kind of a governing body who gives you that one checkup and kind of gives you a stamp of approval. Are you um, doing everything you say you're doing? It, are all the works and kind of your commitment to your mission, can that be seen in your rooms? Can that be seen in, you know, the happiness of your students and their progression? Um, so I think that you have to start with just basics. Like, 
can you show me your certificate? I think yeah. that that's a fair question. Yeah. And thinking about how the Montessori methodology and everything that you've talked about has kind of evolved over the years. I did a little bit of research. You know, this is a methodology that's existed for about 100 years, um, you know, started by a woman in Italy, last name Montessori. Um, uh, over your time working in this uh, in this field, how much evolution have you seen? Is it constantly evolving or has it really stayed pretty true over the years? Um, I think that it is evolving. I do think that the core of it has stayed very true. Uh, I think that the evolution has mainly come in the older grades. You know, um, Montessori materials tend to stop at upper elementary and you don't really see the um, full didactic materials in upper elementary, as you see in the lower early childhood education area. But I think that as long, it kind of goes back to the philosophy of the teacher. I think that anything is possible when you have somebody who's true to Montessori core and that it doesn't really matter um, for a, for a portion of it anyway, exactly what method or sorry, what materials you're using in the classroom, as long as the method in which you use them is the same. Mm -hmm. So if I am choosing to bring in, let's say I have a student in fifth grade who really is working with the fraction boxes, but he needs an extension. Um, for whatever reason, when he's talking about, um, adding, you know, mixed fractions together, it's just not quite working. So I bring in a, you know, a traditional, you know, fraction game. And I think that that's okay to bring into a Montessori classroom, as long as the method in which I'm presenting it is Montessori at its core, which means I have thought through, you know, is this material working? Does it serve a direct and indirect aim for what this individual child needs? When I present it to him, are all the materials that he needs to be successful available to him? Um, am I familiar enough with the material that I can answer questions and, and present it in a clear and concise way? So again, it's just a way to show that you can take other materials as long as you've thought through as a Montessori educator that you can, you know, really make it work in your classroom. Yeah. Does that answer your question? It, it really does. Um, and Melinda, this has been a really eye-opening um, conversation for me because I have friends, again, uh, and we talked about this, that, that have been through uh, Montessori with their kids, and they've spoken very highly of the programs. Um, a lot of it has also been like, you know, it, it's what my child needs, the way my child needs to learn. Um, you know, are there, are there specific traits that parents – should look at in their kid and say, yeah, you know, that would work really well for them. Um, I, I think that Montessori is for every child. Um, there are some caveats there. I think that, um, there are some students with special learning needs that is a school choice. So it means that, um, just because it's Montessori and you have a little bit more freedom in your environment and you can work with your child with, you know, a child, it doesn't mean necessarily that, that a teacher is trained to work with children with special needs. So I do think that there's been kind of a blend recently. Maybe it's been around longer, but I've certainly seen it that Montessori is kind of looked at as untraditional and a little bit looser, which I've explained is not the case. So you have a lot of parents kind of seeking it out as an alternative method of education. And it's not an alternative method of education. It's a method of education. And so I think that that's the kicker is 
you know, it doesn't mean that just because it seems different than your traditional method that we can still accommodate children who have learning differences. That really has to come down to, again, the training of a teacher. And I think administrators also have to make sure that they're not doing a disservice to children and families by accepting students whose needs they can't meet. Um, whose needs they can't meet. So I do think, though, that in general, Montessori is for everyone. I think because it's an individualized method of learning and it meets the individual needs of a child, that it can be a positive experience for everyone. That's really well said. Um, If people wanted to learn more about this Montessori, I mean, you've already provided a ton of information and this has been really valuable, but if people wanted to learn more, do you have any resources or suggested websites, books, anything like that that you would recommend to the listeners at home? Um, I love this book um, by Lillard. It's called Montessori, The Science Behind the Genius. And it talks about the really the science behind the materials and the creation of the method and how um, how it was developed and how every little piece and detail was thought of. Um, I think that that's great because it kind of uh, backs Montessori as being, you know, a science-based based method of education instead of something that has been called granola, and it's completely opposite from that. I also think going to major Montessori conferences are, you know, an incredible way to learn more. Unfortunately, um, AMS's in Dallas was canceled because of the coronavirus, um, but I think that there are a lot of Montessori seminars that are available, and certainly sites like American Montessori Society, they also have a lot of webinars and resources available to parents. That's great. Okay, well, I, this has been an awesome kind of just eye-opening educational experience for me, um, and I always like to end the show with some words of wisdom, and, and you've already provided a lot of words of wisdom, especially thinking about how do you approach education with your uh, with your kids uh, in, in quite a, you know, it's just, this is a, it's a different way from traditionally, like I grew up going to public schools. So did you, um, you know, in the same area here. Um, but if you were to think of this audience at home, uh, potentially, you know, parents of kids, various ages, uh, who are interested in learning about these different forms of education, uh, what words of wisdom might you provide them? Um, well, it's Montessori's words of wisdom, I would say. Uh, it's it's really follow the child. I think that those three words are incredibly powerful. I think that following the child means really looking at your child as an individual and respecting them, um, respecting their personality and the spirit that they're developing. I think that that is really the key in everything. And um, as a parent, I would also, you know, remind all of us, parents, teachers, all adults, um, how would I want to be treated? Because I think that we are so quick to kind of think about that when we're talking amongst our own peers, adult to adult, but we don't tend to think about it as a child. And so before you kind of present something to your child or, you know, um, or getting frustrated with them, I think it's important to say, like, how would I want to be treated? I think that as children, we've all had those moments where we've either been scared of an adult or felt like we weren't understood by an adult um, or, you know, mistrusted for no reason. And I think that we have to remind ourselves that the, the children are making connections and they're making memories. And we have the ability to, um, again, like a Montessori classroom, prepare the environment for them so that it's nurturing and loving. And we know that when children are safe, 
or feel safe, that they're happy. And when they're safe and happy, they can learn. And don't we all want that as adults and parents that we want our children to have those three things. So I think that those are the big ones. Follow the child and how would I want to be treated? Words to live by. I love it, Melinda. Well, again, our guest today has been Melinda Cotter. Thank you so much for taking your time out of your... It's been fun. Yeah. Taking, taking all this time out of your evening. I know you're super busy with uh, a ton of the craziness going on. So do appreciate you taking the time to chat here on the Dad Chronicle today. Thank you. Big thanks again to our guest, Melinda Cotter. Thank you very much for educating us as you do as an educator, educating us on Montessori. I had no idea what to expect from that conversation, to be honest. Like I heard about Montessori. Uh, I have some friends that, that put their kids through it. And uh, I didn't have any other context other than that. So it was very cool to hear some of the, uh, the, the foundational beliefs that they have in learning, um, you know, setting up kids for making like executive decisions at such a young age and, and building that leadership. I think that that's such a cool concept. So I would love to hear what you think. You can email the dad chronicle podcast at gmail.com. And also if you want to uh, subscribe to this show, if you are not already head over to the dad and you can subscribe to your favorite podcatcher there. Also while you're there, become a patron. Even $1 a month helps a lot with the, uh, the cost of this show. And as I mentioned, the Dad Chronicle podcast at gmail.com is our email address. And if you'd like to follow me on social media, you can do so at Alex Albisu, really anywhere. You can find me anywhere. So thank you for listening and we'll see you next time. If you like this show, check out more great content at incastmedianetwork.com.